this podcast, Heather Zetterberg, Chair of Lower School Math, speaks to parents about the math curriculum in Grade 5. And thank you so much for joining us this morning. I want to make sure that I'm respectful of your time and your schedule, so I wanted to jump in and get started. First, just a couple housekeeping things. Feel free to get up whenever you need to, being a teacher of young children. That's what we're used to. But if you need to get up and leave, by all means, I certainly understand and just appreciate that you came for a portion of this morning. A uh, second bit of housekeeping is that there is a handout at the podium as you are walking in. So if you didn't grab it now, you can certainly grab it on the way out. These are just the highlights of <clears throat> what I'm going to be talking about today. Um, but we also are making a podcast recording for posting. So if you want to have a family member or somebody be listening in on this conversation, certainly that's something that will be available next week. And you'll receive an email alert for that. And lastly, uh, when you were in the classroom with your child, you saw that every child had a game packet. This is just a small, small sampling of the kinds of activities that your students are doing on any given day throughout the week, throughout the year. This entire packet is coming home. Hopefully it's a, a nice opportunity to have some game time and have some math conversations. Uh, over the weekends, over vacation, and just as a little bit of extra opportunity to be engaging with each other. Um, so all of this will come home, but of course if you have any questions or if there's a master that you're missing, feel free to either shoot your child's teacher an email or me and we can send it electronically just to make sure that you have that. Um, the, the reason for having mornings like this is really in response to a lot of great feedback that we've been getting from parents. We realize that we really have to step up our game with communication and share with you what's going on in the classroom and the, the why and the how behind that. So this morning is one of our first steps to be able to start to set the stage and let a lot of that information unfold for you. Um, I want to start with big picture ideas, and those are our beliefs and values about math. So I'll take about half of our time talking about that, with the remainder talking about more of the kind of program specifics of how we implement and, and address all of those beliefs and those values. Um, on the back side of your paper, you'll see that there is a checklist. That is the fifth grade math checklist, and I just want to call your attention to it for a couple reasons. One is, this is what you're going to be seeing once the reports come out in January and again at the end of the year. But we can't actually have a checklist that includes every single objective. If we did, it would be a 23-page long document. And I know that because that's what we refer to. Our pacing guide with every specific detailed objective is listed there. So this just gives you the big overview, but as we are digging into new units, obviously we've got more targeted specific objectives. Um, as you can tell from the work that, you're, that you were doing this morning on decimals, there's a lot more than just adding, subtracting, multiplying, and dividing decimals. There's a lot of critical thinking and a lot of other kind of application skills that go along with it. Those are some of the behaviors or attitudes around mathematics that would then come up in the comment section. So for those of you who are new to us, there's the checklist, but then there's also a narrative piece that helps to kind of explain a little bit more. Um, so we'll just get started. 
um, with one of our first beliefs. One of the, un, well, I, unfortunately, it's a common misperception is that people are born math people or they're born to not be math people. And there's a lot of research that has totally disproven that. But unfortunately, we are still working with our children on believing that. Um, a lot of the research about the ability for anybody to reach the highest level of math with effort and with a positive attitude comes from a lot of research that was done from the London taxicab drivers. So a lot of research came out about brain plasticity because of the, the really intense training that these cab drivers go through in order to remember 25,000 locations and 20 different thousand routes for them to take. So when I actually spoke in the fall to a cab driver and I asked about the knowledge test, all I got in response was, ugh, because it was very time consuming. There was a lot of studying, a lot of exams that went along with it. But what was interesting was that he said, the way that he thinks now after going through the knowledge test and being a cab driver is very different. So whereas he used to just have conversations for the conversations, one of the conversations he asked was where I was staying. And then all of a sudden he said, what happens is he starts thinking about every different possible route. And it depends on the time of the day which route he would be taking. And uh, it was just really fascinating. You're thinking about in a very visual way, all those synapses being created, and that's what happens with math as well. So while there are some students that have a natural inclination because of a passion or excitement about math, it doesn't mean that not everybody can learn those higher levels of math. But our attitude and our affect really have a whole lot to do with that. If we believe that we can, we are more likely to achieve. But what's really fascinating is that research is also showing us that having a fixed mindset, even though you are positive about yourself, if you believe that you are that math student, that you were born with that math brain, you are at a disadvantage for growing to higher level math as well. A lot of the reasoning behind that is in part because of that fixed mindset, but in reality, if you believe that you can and that you have arrived and you are that math person, that you are that math thinker, if you encounter something that's slightly challenging, it's a lot scarier. It feels like there's a whole lot more at stake. So a lot of times what happens is students who are really good computers, for lack of a better word, are much more tentative taking that risk to be thinking algebraically. And sometimes what comes out is, oh, well, this is boring, or oh, well, I'm just tired. It's that self-preservation mode. So we have to be really careful that when a child is sending that message, we need to be tuning into what it is that they're saying. Is it that it's just out of their comfort zone and they're uncomfortable with that? Or is it that it truly is something that we need to uh, step up our game on? But this is uh, kind of one of the recurring themes of research of late. So Joe Bowler happens to be an incredible mathematics educator who is really uh, world-renowned in her ability to dovetail research with practice. She's out of Stanford University. Um, so you'll be seeing her name coming up through here as well. So what that all goes to tell us is that 
yes, we have to have that positive mindset, but there are those content skills that have to be established and that we have to continue to work on. It's not good enough to just say, oh, I love math and I'm going to jump in and dive in. So we talk about mathematical fluency and as you can see, there are a lot of different components. One of those components is about knowing from memory. We, that's kind of a, a little snippet, a seed of knowledge. But what has to happen along with just knowing a fact or a procedure from memory it, are, the ability, are the abilities to be accurate, efficient, flexible, and more so be able to apply those skills. What we are learning from a lot of future employers is that they don't need people to do the jobs that machines can do. They don't need the kinds of calculators and computers because we have tools that can do that even more efficiently. What they're looking for are the problem solvers. They're looking for ones that when they get stuck, they can get unstuck. And that's really where a lot of this idea about being able to apply and transfer skills, as well as being able to choose appropriate strategies to get yourself out of a hole. Uh, the next thing is that mistakes are valuable. Again, talking with my fifth grade group that I had lunch with yesterday, they said for the longest time they thought that mistakes were the worst thing in the world that you can ever do. But as one student said, but we have mistake celebrations in fifth grade, which as a, as a math teacher makes me the happiest person on earth. And what we're talking about here, first of all, is that mistakes grow the brain. You don't even need to recognize your own mistake, but just the fact that there was this little bit of uh, ambivalence or a little bit of uh, uncertainty is calling your brain to pay more attention. So when we are making the mistakes, obviously in the classroom situation, we're going back and we're working with our students to make sure that they understand the mistakes that they're making but they're also aware of how they can transfer the learning that they had from making that mistake into a new and novel situation. So mistakes are definitely something that we have to embrace. <clears throat> Along with making mistakes comes the struggle. So here we are in 2018 talking about the value and importance of mistakes and struggles. But Blaise Pascal, who is a French mathematician and religious philosopher, clearly had it in the 1600s, where the struggle alone pleases us, not the victory. Um, one of my um, heroes is Wilma Rudolph, who was born with polio, overcame polio, overcame the fact that she was African-American participating in sports, overcame the fact that she was a woman, and received several gold medals for her efforts and her uh, dedication. Believe me, the reward is not so great without the struggle. And that's a conversation that we were having yesterday, again, with this lunch bunch. What does that mean? And I love how one of the girls put it. She said, you know, when you get the right answer, it's like, yay. But when you get the right answer after you've really worked hard on it, you've earned it. And it's like, yay. <laughs> you can't put it into better context than that. But it's also hard to have the patience to let our children struggle. It's important that we allow them that time to wrestle with ideas, to wrestle with concepts, to make those mistakes and then carry on. Which leads me to the next point, and that is that questions are really important. A uh, couple parents uh, last week, as well as a couple parents this week, 
sent emails to me saying, we want to come to this math event, but I just need to tell you, I'm in a panic state. What if my child asks me a question and I don't know the answer? And my response is, ask a question. It's going to totally freak some kids out because they just want an answer, but that's what's healthy. There's nothing more thought-provoking than to have to think about, A, why you're asking that question, B, what your needs are, and C, be a self-advocate. So I included on your handout some lists of really good questions that if your child is getting stuck with homework, or and it doesn't necessarily have to be directly math-related, but it could be any content area, some questions to ask. This is putting the responsibility and the ownership of knowledge back on the child. I oftentimes make this relationship and make a kind of a connection to when I rented a house, I took care of it, right? But it wasn't like I was that invested in it. But then when I owned a house, all of a sudden, that little nick on the doorway really bothered me and it had to be taken care of. So when you are renting something, in this case, renting knowledge because somebody else is just giving me all this information and I just have to kind of try to process it, you're not taking care of it and you're not preserving and really consolidating and owning that as much as if you are the one to create the knowledge and you are the one to create those connections and the understandings. And this really comes from the ability to have to independently gather that information. A lot of work in fifth grade is getting ready for sixth grade. And a lot of that is developing that autonomy, that sense of self, that sense of being able to advocate for who you are and what you need. And, and really, a lot of that becomes embedded in the questions that students ask and the questions that we ask them in response to their questions. Um, the next point that I want to make is that math is about creativity and making sense. It's not just about strings of numbers. There is such an incredible, beautiful connection to art and to music when we're talking about concepts of math. Again, another misunderstanding which um, has become a pervasive myth, unfortunately. We've got a lot of work to do to kind of rewrite this is the idea of using fingers. It used to be thought that if you needed to use your fingers to do calculations or computations that you must not be terribly capable. And there are some programs, some kind of tutoring support programs that actually in their writing say, if you see your child using their fingers, reprimand them immediately. And that's a direct quote from one particular site that I saw. We could not be doing kids a greater disservice if we take away that visual support. It provides an anchor. There's also a lot of research that shows this connection just between the tactile notion of using your fingers and touching and having it trigger other th thoughts and ideas. I could do a two-hour workshop just on that. It's absolutely fascinating. But when our students are moving forward, we need to make sure that we are providing them with more opportunities for those visual clues. So it might be a chart, it might be a poster, it might be uh, solve this particular division problem two different ways. It's challenging them to think about what's similar, it's challenging them to think about what's different, but it's also giving them something to rest a lot of ideas and thoughts on so that they're not keeping their brains occupied with so much data. Another quote that 
every single child in fifth grade has heard me say, they would say way too many times, is brains are for having thoughts, not holding them. We've got other ways to be able to hold those thoughts, but we want to be able to have that mental space to be able to generate more and more ideas. Um, so having the opportunity to create um, a space for representing that is really important. Many believe that the language of mathematics is a language of its own, and to a certain degree, I absolutely agree with that. But what's really important is that mathematics is more about, is about more than just communicating an answer, just providing a number numerical response. Oftentimes, children will say things like, oh, well, I, know, I just know the answer. Why do I have to show my work? And it's important for us from a very early age to be able to say, well, that's what we in mathematics call reasoning. So your ability to show your sequential steps is how you, as a mathematician, communicate your reasoning. Sometimes we communicate it by, by doing step-by-step -step procedures, and we talk about them. Sometimes it's within a writing thing. Sometimes it's a visual component. But again, as we're moving forward, we need to make sure that our students are developing that discipline of reasoning right now. Sometimes it's strictly numbers, and as you get to become, um, as students get into more of the algebraic, true algebra classes, it becomes more and more critical. But that foundation starts now. So if you have a child who the answer pops into their head, well, that's great, but show me the proof, show me the reasoning. And if, you, if they're bucking it, just say, Heather said so. And we're, we'll be good with that. Um, the next one is that depth is more important than speed. Again, another misunderstanding that faster means smarter. And I actually um, attended an incredible seminar that said, if you are really fast and rushed in giving your answer, that's showing me that you didn't take the time to think. That's not what I value. I don't value you getting the answer spit out as quickly as possible. What I value is that you're taking your time to be thinking. Again, kids, they're living in the classrooms where they're seeing somebody's finishing right away, and they're sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I just don't know what to do with this, or I'm still back on step one. It's important that we send them the message that speed is a necessity. That being said, if you think back to third grade and our real emphasis on making sure that our students knew those basic facts as readily as possible, there's a balance there. Again, we don't want a child to think that they can just spend 25 minutes to come up with the solution to five times six. There has to be, when we go back to that whole notion of mathematical fluency, there has to be efficiency along the way, as well as the accuracy and the flexibility. But unfortunately, students think that faster means smarter. And what's a really important comment to make and point to make is that, and Dr. Miriam Mirzakhani, I always, Mirzakhani, I always get it wrong, was the first female Fields Medal Award winner. So the Fields Medal is like the Nobel Prize in mathematics, given every four years to one to four mathematicians under the age of 40 for some of the exemplary work that they do. She was the first and has, only, and has since been the only female, and unfortunately she's also since died of breast cancer, but um, she, her entire uh, workload from the time that she was in her native Iran to when she came to the United States only dealt with 
visual aspects of mathematics. And she took great pride in the fact that she took a long time to wrestle through and struggle through problems. And I think just so far as role models go, it's really important that our, our students understand that these high level mathematical thinkers who have accomplished so much and contributed so much to their field and to our lives consider themselves to be the slowest of the slowest workers. And that's because they're allowing themselves the time to be digging deep. Again, so Laurent Schwartz was a, a French mathematician, another Fields Award, a Fields Medal um, awardee, again saying he was slow. And, and the common theme with a lot of these really amazing um, mathematicians is that from a very young age, they thought that they were stupid. They thought that they were the slowest ever and that they would never achieve anything. I love being able to tell a story of when I was in 10th grade, my Algebra 2 teacher said to me one day, you're never going to make it in the world of math, just give up now. And the reason why she said that was because she had given us what I thought was an absolutely fascinating problem, a real world problem involving algebra. And I was so excited that I just dug in. But the problem was everybody else had finished 10 problems and I was still looking at different ways to look at that first problem. And so she in that moment in front of him, and back then there were 25 other kids in that Algebra 2 class, um, to make that announcement and proclamation. Now fortunately, I was a rebellious enough kid to not care what she said, but it's, it's just, it's an important message that our kids learn. We as parents and adults need to make sure that we're not sending a conflicting message, and that's hard, because a lot of our childhood revolved around the notion that only fast people are smart, regardless of what you're doing. A faster reader is a better reader? No. Maybe they're not getting the depth of, of the material in the same ways that we can look at it as math. Um, and lastly, math class is about learning, not performing. So that goes hand in hand with that speed notion. But the other thing is that you'll notice throughout our lower school, our students don't get grades. What they do is they have ongoing assessments of a variety of different sorts. But what they have is the opportunity to then conference with the teacher after the fact to figure out where their, where their mistakes were. They're able to then correct their mistakes, write the ship, develop more understanding, solve a similar problem or solve a related problem. So it's not about me labeling you as an 80% student because in that one little moment, that was what you did. It's about looking and having the time to sit and reflect and have the time to process. So again, if a child is making a mistake on a homework, it's okay to just say, stop. It's not about finishing the whole page, and, and every teacher in the lower school supports me on this. It's not about finishing the entire page as quickly as you can. It's about making sure that the work that you're putting on paper is your best. It's representative of your best thinking. And so if a child only completes one-fourth of a homework assignment, that's okay. That's good if they're really spending their time focusing in on that particular question. Then what I would do is I would ask my child to talk to your teacher about this. Give them that responsibility. It's a knee-jerk reaction that, oh, let's just shoot off an email as a grown-up. 
put it on them. They will take more away from that experience than if you were advocating for them. So when we're talking about learning and performing, um, that gets us into differentiation. So we've already established that some people are slightly faster workers, some people are slightly slower workers. What we know is that there is no fixed trajectory for any child in any particular concept or subject area. So you might have a child who really enjoys doing pages of computation and can do them efficiently. And then when it comes time to learning about and applying concepts of geometry, ooh, it's a little bit different for them and they're feeling a little bit uncomfortable. We recognize that students come to us with a lot of different approaches to learning, different levels of readiness, and different levels of interest. So when we are talking about making sure that we are finding the right fit of instruction, it's really about talking about differentiation. We are actively finding a systematic approach to plan for instruction moving forward. This visual just kind of gives you a, a, an overview of what it is that we are looking at. I'm going to go through a few of these pieces as we progress through the next 10 minutes. Um, but really what's really important is for us to take a look at the ways that we can differentiate and the whys behind it. So first of all, the content, what it is that our students learn. We have our curricular objectives. We know that by the end of fifth grade, our students are going to be able to do 23 pages worth of objectives. You see the checklist as representative of those. But some students are able to dig deeper, some students are able to extend further, and we are cognizant of that, making sure that we are tuning into what their curiosities are as well. This is an overall model that shows us from pre-kindergarten math experiences through 12th grade math experiences, the relative proportion of time that certain topics are covered. So when we're looking at fifth grade, we're really looking at this band here when we transition from the lighter to the darker. And you can see that for the most part, the percentages of time spent is about equal across the board. There's, while I love this graphic for a lot of reasons, there's one point that I really want to make, and that's about this idea of algebra. This is from the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, and in terms of algebra, they are talking about strictly those procedures related to finding the answer to a variable. But we look at algebra in the broader context, where algebra comes from an Arabic word meaning the putting together of broken pieces. We want kids to be able to put together all those ideas and all those pieces throughout everything related to number and geometry and measurement and data analysis and probability. So what I did was I distilled this into um, a different graphic that also you need to look at understanding that the critical underpinnings for math relate to problem solving, reasoning, and proof. And that's going to be the algebraic reasoning, abstract reasoning, logical reasoning, quantitative reasoning, as well as visual spatial. But what I have here is a relative distribution of how those number skills and those other non-algebraic types of skills fall into the fifth grade curriculum. So literally what I did was I went through uh, made, transferred my 23 pages of objectives into an Excel spreadsheet, categorized them, and this is what popped up. 
And what's really fascinating is then what I did was I looked through our pacing of individual teachers. And while some teachers might like to do one kind of a unit before the other, there's that flexibility among the three fifth grade teachers, this, this ratio is pretty consistent. So you'll see that the idea of working with place value, whole numbers and decimal numbers, represents a small portion. Decimal and whole number operation and operations with fractions take up about 40% of a fifth grade child's experience. Um, it's, it's just nice to kind of see, so whereabouts are we going with this and what is the relative proportion? But again, this is just another big global view. Um, as I have referred to many times, the 23-page document of the pacing guide that we have really covers the specifics. Um, one of the things that we are actively doing is reflecting upon our practice of communication. And one of the things that we're also considering is how can we share those lists of objectives for each of those units with you in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming to, to families and to parents. So just be aware that you'll be getting a lot of information moving forward about specific objectives and what your students will be doing at these different junctures. So when we transition to work on fractions, just expect that you'll be getting communication from us about what those objectives mean and what those objectives are. Uh, we also make sure that we are cognizant of the process, so how it is that students are learning those particular skills. Some of them might work independently at a center. Some of them might work on viewing a Khan Academy module before then applying those uh, skills. They might work one-on-one -on -one with a the teacher. They might work with a partner. There are a whole lot of different models. Because the process of differentiating is so fluid, sometimes you don't even know that there is a lot of this going on. So there, it might be that a child comes to me and works with me because they are really excited about a challenging way to think about something or that they need a little bit more support. Um, but what naturally happens is that this will go on in different ways throughout, throughout the year. So it might be a flexible grouping, and I'll get to that in just a second, where it's more of a formal type of redistribution of where students are and their readiness or their interest, or it might just happen on a daily, daily basis. Um, so the product is another thing that we modify. A student might actually make an instructional video that shows how to add fractions together, or they might uh, calculate nutritional values from a recipe. That's one of the kids' favorites when we're dealing with fractions. You know, here's the chocolate chip cookie recipe. What's the nutritional value and how many miles will you have to run to work off those calories? Uh, another example of ways that students have some choice in the matter and figuring out what it is that they're going to do with teacher guidance. Um, just a couple other ideas of things that are outside of just a pencil and paper task, but really the application. We come back to this because what I want to do is to talk about the why and the how, not just what we differentiate. Starting with readiness, students, when we talk about readiness, we're talking about the entry point, what it is that a child comes with background knowledge for. And again, I, I said this before, it's really important that 
the readiness, that we're aware that the readiness level is going to be different depending upon the topic or the concept. And there are a bunch of different tools that we use in order to determine a child's readiness. So there are ongoing assessments of many different kinds. There's just the regular daily performance on tasks. There's also inventories that we do where we might just have a child try a bunch of different problems and we're recording lots of notes and quite simply an interview. You know, how is it that you feel about this? What's your biggest question about this particular concept or skill? Um, I wanted to just zip on, well, let me go to this, uh, different ways that we can differentiate. We might make um, some different tasks available to students. Uh, we give them homework options. But what I want to talk more about is the flexible grouping because about three times this year, the kids have already gone through one flexible grouping rotation. There will be two more. One will most likely be related to fraction concepts where we see that there's a, a broader range of kind of interest and um, so far as the readiness goes. And then another one is in the spring about volume. So we'll have those opportunities for three classrooms to shuffle, regroup based upon different criteria with at least four teachers, but this year it's five teachers with me joining in as well as Cassie Spidori. Um, so there will be smaller groups along the way and more time for more interaction with more targeted activities. We also have to pay attention to a child's interest and I've got um, a friend in fifth grade who loves coming for little math conversations and ask math questions and turning these questions into products. Uh, several of the kids last year as fourth graders came to me. Um, they really knew what the content was that was happening in the classroom. So we started to explore different questions and applications. And the kind of the best thing about it was after seven instructional days, one of the boys said, oh my gosh, wait, we haven't done math at all. And yet they were still dealing with all these extended concepts that were mind-boggling. I was showing them to um, Osler Kairasi, who's a seventh, who was teaching a seventh grade class the period before. She says, they're doing that? My kids are doing that. Oh my gosh. You know, so it was really kind of fun that we were paying attention to our students' interests as well. Interest allows for students to make choice, which in and of itself is a great motivator. And um, helps kids along the way. We also have to pay attention to a child's learning profile. and We need to be aware of the fact that this isn't static at, at all. So for example, are you, do you like to work more by yourself or do you like to work more with a group? Do you prefer a more noisy environment? Do you prefer a more quiet environment? So we have to be aware that these factors come into play as our students are um, moving along and that they're aware of what their learning preferences are and that we are catering to them as much as possible. Um, and lastly, what that brings me to is the whole idea coming back around to assessment and being able to share that information back out with you. We have to make sure that the assessment is also matching what it is that we are trying to teach and that the assessment is also matching what a child is ex personal experience and preferences are. So if a teacher says, well, you know, uh, or if a child comes home and says, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't do all of the questions on that uh, decimal assessment and I feel like I really bombed it, well, maybe that's because we didn't step in and give the right questions, that we didn't step in and have the right environment. So let's go back and let's walk through each one of these. Show me what you know. Or you write a question, 
or you write an assessment for me to do, but you also write the answer sheet, and let's see what happens. And that really shows that what they're really capable of doing, but maybe just not so independently motivated to do that paper that everybody else is getting, and they're worried about what somebody else is, how quickly somebody else is working. So I hope that you walk away today with a sense of, A, a little snippet of what happens in the classroom and the experiences that your children have. But more importantly, what I hope you walk away with is an understanding of our beliefs and our values about mathematics instruction, and that that really governs a lot of what happens within the classroom. So thank you very much. Foot Podcasts are a production of the Foot School, an independent school for grades K through nine located in New Haven, Connecticut. Visit us online at footschool.org.